Randy, I'm, I'm wondering if uh, you guys have agreed so much and complimented each other so much this weekend. Is there anything about Wayne's talk just now that you don't like? Wow, why don't you ask him what he liked? Wow. First, what did you like? Let me put it more nicely. Can you react to it? Any thoughts on yeah. what, what Wayne just said? Well, I think it's, uh, it, it's a fascinating subject, and it's also a heartbreaking one. And I think we, we've seen that. And the former Soviet Union saw it in Eastern Europe, saw it in China, seen it in parts of Africa. And you, you look at people who have the same capacities created in God's image, surrounded by, in many cases, great natural resources, and you say, why? And I think Wayne has put his finger on many of the reasons why. And it's, it's tragic. And it, it dishonors God because it oppresses people. And it doesn't give people the opportunity that we have. With all the problems we have, in our country, and they are significant, and they are serious. Doesn't it make you grateful that we're here instead of so many of these other places? Wow. My kids often pray at night, Lord, thank you for stores to buy stuff in. Mm, (laughs) And we always say, yeah. Let's thank the yeah. Lord for other things as well. Yeah. And, you know, it's not about buying stuff. It's, as a matter but, of fact, yeah. But well, hearing the means of the pencil, and, and uh, right. it does make me thankful for stores. When Wayne was uh, uh, talking, uh, one of the things that he was saying, Steve, my friend Steve Keels, who's here with me, and I were in the back, and I said, remember when we were in the Soviet Union, and it was still the Soviet Union then, and they showed us, they took us to a manufacturing place, and they showed us, the two different bottles they had to put uh, condiments in, in stores. It all had to go in something like this or something that was just a little bit different that was like this. That's it. These were the only two bottles approved to put condiments in. Nobody could get creative. Nobody could do things different. Nobody could do... Yeah, and it was just... You looked at those bottles and you're thinking, they're just so plain and ordinary... Well, you could say, well, that doesn't make any difference, except you've got regulators, you've got government telling people, you can't be creative, you must do it this way. And you can't compete with each other by making a better bottle and a more attractive label. Amazing. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Stifles human creativity. Ryan, I might mention on this bibliography... Number four by P.T. Bauer. It's a little bit challenging reading. He's a British economist, but he blames much of African poverty and earlier Indian poverty on British socialists in the 1910s, 1920s, 1930s in the British colonial era. They exported socialism to Africa. And he said it just destroyed their economy. So you could read P.T. Bauer. Okay. Now, Wayne, you've done this presentation in other countries, in, yes. in poor countries. Yes. What kind of reaction have you gotten? Well, a very common reaction. I can see people, in, in, hands up in the back. Okay, we see there's a lot of corruption in Albania. How do we change this? Right. That was the frequent question. And our answer always is, we don't know. We are not Albanians. Only Albanians can change Albania. All we can do is say, here's the goal. Here are things that make societies productive. But... But, but my friend Tony, who's an evangelical Christian there in Albania, said they've got a study group in a, government, in a government agency that's quite powerful looking through these principles to see how they can start to begin to implement them. 
So it will take heroic leaders in poor countries to transform those societies a bit at a time. And it will take vigilance on our part to see that we don't drift into more and more of those patterns ourselves. So, so you're, not a, you're not a big fan of big government, are you? Uh, no. <laughs> Just big enough to keep us safe. How big is too big? <laughs> well, when it starts doing stuff, that the, the, the fundamental question is who owns property? Does government own property or do individuals own property? And once you see that, and I could develop it further from Scripture, then you say, well, what right does government have to take money from me that I've earned, except for essential government services to stop crime, to protect the nation, probably some other functions, but um, regulatory functions. But um, that's, a, that's a fundamental question. I think anytime government takes away anyone's incentive to work hard and yeah. be productive, yeah. it is counterproductive, and it really violates Scripture because Scripture is calling upon us Proverbs 6, you know, look at the ant. Don't be a slugger. Don't be a lazy person. Have incentives. Go out and work. Well, the ant goes out and works, and it collects certain things. And even in the animal kingdom, there's the survival instinct, and there's the, uh, the, the squirrel that collects the nuts. There's all of these things. But if there was someone there who kept taking away the nuts that the squirrel was collecting continuously. At some point, a squirrel goes, this isn't working, it doesn't matter, and a disincentive. And on a human level, that's happening all the time. People work. I know somebody who worked hard and then for a while and then just decided, I don't want to work anymore and quit his job and got on, well, uh, first on uh, unemployment, then got on welfare, then on... And discovered, I can get along. I, I can survive this way. And scripture says, if a man will not work, let him not eat. Not because God wants anyone to starve, mm -hmm. but because they won't starve. Mm -hmm. They will work instead. Mm -hmm. And when you take that incentive away to work, you, you just do a really destructive thing to people. It takes away dignity. And I, I'm thinking of one person right now who has not worked for many, many years and uh, his, his sense of self-respect is just utterly eroded. Uh, it has not been a favor for him. Yep. Did previous generations talk about the nobility and worth of owning land more than we do? And the nobility and... Of, pro of productive work. Yeah, of work. See, so. now, look, I have a lot of retired people in my Sunday school class. Scott's have Bible church. But you know what they do? They help others. They're, doing, they're being rich in good works. 1 Timothy 6, 17, uh, 18 uh, says that those who don't have to work to, to support themselves anymore should be rich in good works. They teach Sunday school class. They work in the nursery. They do counseling. They work in neighborhood ministries to the poor. Or they're doing other things to care for others. And so they're rich in good works. So as long as they're productive in something that, makes, that does good for other people, I think that's, that's good. And let me comment in that regard is another thing that Steve, Steve Keels, is one of my pastors, and I were talk, have talked about is the number of young men, and we're very concerned about this, uh, young Christian men who are not working, whose wives are working, mm. and who simply are 
taken a few classes over here and once in a while they apply for a job, but we all know that the economy's not good and you just can't get a job and yet in so many cases they're not trying and there are a number of minimum wage jobs available they could get, but they don't want to do that you know, kind of work. I know a lawyer who's working as a clerk at Target, but he's working. He's working. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. So how do we... How do we get a hold of young guys and really um, teach them work and discipline and diligence? Um, <clears throat> what, would you, what would you say to us as a church? To don't support invest? them. Yeah. I mean, parents. I'm talking to parents. Okay. Um, we, we had, um, Margaret and I had a difference of opinion regarding um, one of our sons who took some time out from college. And he was going from job to job, and I think he was hungry. Hmm. And um, I said, Margaret, we've got to send him some money. He was in Minnesota. We were in Illinois. No, Margaret said, don't do that. And then it dawned on me, I haven't heard of anybody starving in the United States for a long time. Hmm. So we didn't send him money. And you know what? It was the best thing. Yeah. It was the best thing that happened. Hmm. Now, um, <laughs> <laughs> Yay! Yeah, she's gone. Margaret, she was a lot tougher than I was, but it was great. And now... You know, he's married, he's got, a, he's got good job skills, and he's got a job, and he's supporting himself, and he got a little baby, and I'm just yeah. so proud of him. But there was a time when it was hard. Um, but we didn't give him money for living expenses. So. And I, I would comment, too, that, um, and I know this gets us into a, another area, but I, I think that some of the downsides of the egalitarian way of thinking in our culture is that it's like the old traditional thing was that a man needed to provide for his family. I think that is a biblical idea. I think that is not just an old tradition and now, of course, I understand. I mean, this isn't, um, uh, you know, there are a number of women who work part-time with our ministry and uh, it's not that I think it's wrong for a woman to be out there working. What I think is wrong is for an able-bodied husband to not be working when he could be working, yep. if there, yes, if there's a temporary situation where uh, a young man is finishing school yep. and he's working very hard to do it and he's going to get this out of the way, but the foreseeable goal here yep. and not too distant future is that he is going to be the long-term breadwinner for this family. Okay, but in so many cases, it's like, and, and, and fine, if a husband stays home and watches the kids for a while, that can be healthy. But this idea that it doesn't matter whether dad's out there working or who's home with the kids and numbers of moms that are separated from their kids during the day, uh, there's just a lot of things in it. And I, I think it just comes back to uh, providing role models and having men in the church take aside perhaps uh, some of the young men and say, you know, there's a better way here. In fact, maybe you need to quit school, get a job until you can earn up enough money to pay for school to go there part-time as you continue to work and provide for your family. Yeah, that's good. How about one more question on the, the government economy thing, and then we'll get into some other topics. But, Wayne, what do you think is the case with China? Uh, China doesn't do so well with some of these principles you were talking about, but they currently seem to be okay economically. Well, under Deng Xiaoping, the 
prime minister, he decided that a, a free market system in the, econo in the economic system instead of a communist system would be good. And so he began to allow people to, uh, to retain the benefit from small plots of land that they could use and then factories to begin to produce and, and gain wealth from their production. So he instituted a free market system. Now, they don't have private ownership of land in China. Margaret and I were just there a few months ago. But they do have 40-year leases and 70-year leases on land, which is close to ownership. And you can develop it, and you can gain returns from it. There is no freedom of criticizing the government in China. There's no political freedom. Uh, but there is substantial economic freedom. Um, and so they've taken off. Uh, they've begun to grow because, um, because of other factors that they're following here and high value on education, high value on work, um, things like that. Uh, economically, um, the United States still produces about a fourth. About, we're 4% of the world's population. We produce about 25% of the world's wealth, um, um, about $14 trillion a year. The next largest economy after us, about one-third of our size, is Japan still, although Japan has been stagnant for many years. And then after that, so if we're 14 trillion, Japan is 5 trillion, China 4 trillion, Germany about 4 trillion, France about 3, United Kingdom 2.5, Italy, Brazil, Russia, uh, smaller. Mm -hmm. But we're, by, we're far and away the world's largest economy still. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't mean it's going to last forever. Let's talk about the church. Uh, what do you see, both of you, in evangelicalism, uh, the church in America, that's encouraging and maybe something that you see that's concerning to you? Randy? Well, one thing that's encouraging uh, is that I see a lot of thirst for God, uh, a lot of seeking after God <clears throat> take among next generation, fairly young people, people in their 20s, early 30s, uh, that truly are wanting a close relationship with God to honor him, to invest their lives for things that, that, that really count, that, that really matter. On the discouraging end of things, I think we live in a culture that is so saturated with um, Entertainment options that include everything from young men growing up with video games and other media outlets that have become substitutes for reading that the functional illiteracy rate, meaning they can read but they don't, or they read Facebook but they don't read you know, <laughs> serious stuff, I'm concerned that there's a lot of young people growing up, a lot of young men growing up, who, because they are not readers, therefore will not be readers of the Word of God. And they will be leading our churches, uh, and many of them will not uh, know the Word of God. And I would say in my own home church, which we started back in 1977, uh, it probably would score uh, if the, on, you know, it, it might be in the 90th percentile uh, of of what you'd call a Bible-teaching church. So I, I know we'd be well better than average, and yet the level of biblical knowledge has, in these 33 years, steadily declined. And that is a source of great 
concern for me, and I think it's reflected in the way people live and certainly in the way that they think. Um, a Christian worldview was much better established in many people's minds when we started our church than it is in the average person's mind in our church today. Sadly, that is the case. So there's a lot of people who are not studying and reading. There are people who are. I mean, that's encouraging. That's good. But um, that's, that is discouraging. Before we get to Wayne, can you follow up with that and, and give us a, a suggestion on how we, we fight that? I think part of it is just a, a, a deliberate a thing. Um, for instance, a great idea would for, be for you to have your church have a theology conference. Um, that would be a great thing. You know, you're We've been doing meaning it. to. We've yes, been meaning yeah, to. you've been meaning to. But, but seriously, where you what say, what, yeah, where, where you, where you say um, look, here are books, let's read them. You've been doing that. Um, and, and have reading groups and have small group Bible study leaders you know, require that they go through uh, Grudem's Bible Doctrine book and do this and do and offer things that that cultivate and then have things like uh, fast uh, from television for the month of <laughs> plug it in you know the month of May you know and um, you know people will be lobbying for sports related exceptions but not, nonetheless <laughs> you know but the point is that um, to, to just say something like. Um, we are going to use this in our families to read books like these, and then we'll have some books on audio over here if you want to play them in the family, listen to them together, and they discuss them. Or, you know, read the, and here, here's what we're doing. We're making these books available. And let's have a month without television, not because television's evil, just simply because it would be great to just read and enjoy reading God's word and great books that take us to God's word and ground us in our faith. And then after we're done with that for 30 days, then people will go back to watching television and some will go back to watching it as much as they did before. But others will have found something, discovered the joys of reading, of getting into interesting discussions and and challenging, move forward, let's go somewhere in our walk with God. All right, Wayne, things encouraging, things concerning. May I ask how old you are? (laughs) 35. Okay, that's what's encouraging. Yes. And Ryan, um, I think I could go to most any city in the United States and find quite a few Ryan Kellys, 35-year-old pastors with young congregations that are growing. Mm -hmm. It's all over the United States. It's amazing, and it's incredibly encouraging. Yes. Okay, so that's what's encouraging. This is, this is what's encouraging, mm-hmm. um, just what I'm seeing here, and that it's duplicated all around the United States. So God's doing something. Yeah. And, and this, is, this is a serious church. I mean, that you'd have a conference like this. Mm-hmm. People serious about the Lord. And where's the worship leader? Who is it? What's your name? Sure. That's what's encouraging. Yeah. See, worship that brings us into the presence of God, the genuine worship. Yes. I see that all around the United States. That's really encouraging. Um, I'll tell you what came to mind, and I haven't thought about this before, but let me just ask you, how many of you are in the, within the last month have been in a, a home fellowship group or a small group where you've had 
30 minutes or more of prayer without interruption. One, two, oh, good, several of you. So, you're, so there are some praying groups here. But my guess is, among evangelicals, there isn't a lot of really extended prayer. And when groups will take an extended time of prayer and you get all the kind of prayers that you're supposed to pray out of the way, and then you're in the presence of the Lord and just waiting before him and bringing needs before him and then silence and waiting and seeing what else God brings to mind and praying, there's a kind of a closeness and a depth that comes in the presence of God that, uh, that transforms our lives and transforms our churches. Mm-hmm. So that's just one thing that I would say, perhaps there's a shallowness um, that comes from maybe not att- enough setting aside and blocking out enough time for prayer. Yeah. The Puritans talked about praying until we pray. Yes, yeah. Oh, that's that's yeah, what you have in mind. Yeah. A, little, a, little, um, a little book that I like by David McIntyre has that phrase in it, pray until you pray. Yeah. And oh. So that's one thing. And then, Ryan, the other discouraging thing is... Um, an abundance of Christian publishers publishing doctrines that are really misleading and harmful to people. I won't go into detail, but not a lot of discernment. I remember talking to the president or the chief editor of a Christian publishing house and saying, this is just contrary to scripture. Why do you publish this? And he said, well, you know, it's an evangelical author. We need to get these author ideas out there. And I said, no, you're the gatekeeper. You're responsible for this. Two publishing houses in the United States are responsible for the spread of open theism, Baker Bookhouse and InterVarsity Press. They shouldn't have given it that platform. They did. And now we've got the damage. So um, that's, uh, that's something that's discouraging. And I would really agree with that. Yeah. My experience in publishing, I, something really does need to change there. They're gatekeepers. Yeah. Wayne, how many books on gender issues have you written? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Recovering Biblical Manhood and Women that I edited with John Piper. Two books I edited for Crossway called Biblical Foundations for uh, Manhood and Womanhood and Pastoral Leadership for Manhood and Womanhood. I edited with Dennis Rainey. Uh, and then a book, big book from Multnomah called Evangelical Feminism and Biblical Truth. So that's four. Then they did a condensed book out of that called Countering the Claims of Evangelical Feminism. That's five. And then a book called Evangelical Feminism and New Path to Liberalism. That's six. A lot. I'm tired. <laughs> I'm, I'm tired of it. It's kind of, it's out there. Um, um, I don't know. It was a, it's been a raging controversy. We'll continue to do so, but everything I want to say about it is in those books. <laughs> Will you say one more thing? No. No. Okay. <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> well, I'll ask Randy then. Randy, no, you could ask me. <laughs> Either of you or I both can. of you. Do you see uh, the work of Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood and uh, a lot of these books that you've written having uh, a, a significant effect? Are well, you encouraged? I'll tell you, I'll tell you what's happened. Whole denominations have solidified in a biblical direction, saying we want to honor and encourage and promote the ministries of women as well as men. We see women as well as men as having wonderfully valuable roles in the kingdom of God. And um, women as well as men have gifts from God that need to be used fully in the church, but there's a leadership role that's reserved for men in the eldership board and the pastorate and a leadership role for husbands in, in the family, loving, humble leadership. Whole, the whole Southern Baptist denomination has solidified around that. The Presbyterian Church in America has. The Missouri Synod Lutheran has. Those are big, influential groups. PC is not as big, but it's really influential. 
Sovereign Grace Family of Churches has, Acts 29 has, and uh, Crossway Books, and um, some other movements that are, I think, very encouraging. Family Life with Campus, uh, Division of Campus Crusade uh, in that regard, and, um, and a number of other groups. But I see here, and I see in England, that the evangelical world is dividing over this issue. But people who adopt an egalitarian position say there's no, there's no restrictions in roles for men and women. All, there's no leadership role for husband in marriage. There's no, and, and women as well as men can be senior pastors and elders. That egalitarian group is abandoning the authority of Scripture in one area after another. It's predictable. It's a downward slide into liberalism. And the evangelical world, that has really become a, 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 a kind of a litmus test for where people and denominations are on many other issues. And it includes a, a redefining of the, our understanding of the triune God. It does. His very Sadly. nature. Yeah. Would you expound on that a little bit? Yeah. <clears throat> the, the, the movement toward um, all the members of the Trinity are in mutual submission to each other, and the Son is no more in submission to the Father than the Father is in submission to the Son, or they are equal in that. So, You've got all these passages of Scripture which clearly have the Son in submission to the Father. He's come to do the Father's will, and not my will but yours be done. And, you know, all of these passages in the Gospel of John alone. But where is there even one, as I was asking someone who takes this position in a very well-known book that's sold millions and millions of copies... Um, what? Yeah, without being specific here, um, could you show me one passage, even one passage, that shows the Father submitting to the Son? Nope. There is none. It doesn't exist. Yet it emphatically states that there is no difference there. That the Son does not submit to the Father any more than the Father to the Son. It just, and yet. Uh, and so now, in the interest of defending what we want, how we want to view men and women in marriage and churches, we actually go back to the nature of God himself and try to take that out of him, and resulting in a doctrinal heresy of the worst kind, because when we're free to just violate what Scripture says and come up with new ideas about what constitutes the triune God, if we have the liberty to do that, what do we not have the liberty to change? Right. Well, and it also skews the picture of Christ and the church, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Mm. yeah. Some other movements, Gospel Coalition, Together for the Gospel, Desiring God, other movements, they're solidly complementarian in terms of men's and women's roles. And that's where God is working. That's where new churches are coming, and they're growing, oh. and it's exciting. Mm. So... Wouldn't you say on the concerning front, there is a, a movement of 20-somethings and, and 30-somethings. Uh, there's kind of a, in the emergent church, yeah. it's almost a given that yeah, you're but it's falling off Yeah, but it's falling off the edge in terms of right. being, rec being recognized as evangelical at all. So. Yeah. yeah. Yep. There's lots of stuff going on. Yeah. So what, what issues do we divide over? Uh, Those you do that it, bring significant harm to the Christian life of people and those that bring significant damage to other doctrines. Okay. How does it affect doctrine and life? Yeah. Now, there are some doctrinal issues that, in, in your book, your systematic theology book, uh, you say Christians shouldn't divide over, and yet there, there are many Christians that yeah. over end times. Some yeah. people would leave a church over 
uh, their pastor's view of end times or miraculous gifts? What are other issues that sometimes Christians divide over, but you, you think that they shouldn't? Well, divide for what? I mean, I think churches should have a right to define their doctrinal basis, and you should decide that officers in your church and maybe Sunday school teachers would agree with you. Um, so I don't think that baptism in the long run is a great issue, huge issue, but I think Baptist churches should insist on their view of baptism, for instance, though I don't think... So, and I guess I told you, the Lord's joke on me is that I believe strongly in believer's baptism, and I brought up three sons to believe in believer's baptism. So what do I have now? I got three believing sons, but one Presbyterian and two Lutherans. <laughs> so, oh, well. Um, <laughs> so I have two granddaughters who they say have been baptized, but I don't believe it. <laughs> 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 Makes them happy, I guess. <laughs> and, you know, I'm thankful that it's an expression of their Christian commitment and their commitment to bring up our granddaughters in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So I'm very thankful for that. Yeah. I'm happy about it. <laughs> Even though I don't call it baptism. <laughs> <laughs> While we're on the baptism issue, you wrote uh, a position in your systematic theology and then changed your view yeah. on this. It, you know what I'm um, getting at, Wayne held a position for church membership um, saying that in Baptist churches, Presbyterians, convinced, thoughtful, evangelical Presbyterians who've been baptized as infants yep. should be able to join those Baptist churches. Yep. And, and just so you know, we, we, we do that here at Desert Springs. There okay. are, uh, we case by case yep. uh, basis. Desert Springs, but, is that the name of this church? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> that you have clearly influenced. Oh, boy. Well, that's old Grudem, not new Grudem. I'll tell you what happened. We're, we're an old Grudem church. Okay. So. I thought, oh, isn't this nice? A Baptist church can admit people who haven't been baptized as believers, and everybody can be happy, and they can be members. And I just couldn't persuade the elder board at my Southern Baptist church, of which I was a member of the elder board. They just didn't see it. And, uh, and then another, another a lay, a layman in, uh, in another state was talking to me once and said, Wayne, you know, this just, we can't do this at Baptist churches because it, it really is saying that we can admit unbaptized people to church and baptism doesn't matter. And I said, well, they've been baptized as infants. But you don't believe that that's baptism. So you see, really to do that, it's kind of acknowledging that baptism apart from profession of faith counts as baptism. And so I changed the paragraph in the book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you want to comment on that, Randy? Well, let me just comment on the changing the paragraph in the book, which I really appreciate because I have had letters come to me. I've, I've thought through different issues, and I've gone back to publishers and said, you know, I don't agree with this anymore. I need to rewrite this. And, oh, man, that's going to be tough because... You know, when we republish, we're going to have to do this. It's going to change the page count. It's going to, well, you know, you've got to, you say what you believe at the time. On, on the baptism issue, probably I, I don't have a strong, you know, belief on that, except I, I guess would, I would say that if, if a church is a Baptist church, I would expect them yeah. to stick with yeah. that basic doctrine. But I had been in an evangelical free church, and they allow both options yeah. <clears throat> historically. That's what Trinity is. So I can see that works too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, so I don't, it's, it's not a, I'm not going to write anything more about it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think. All right. Well, I, I want to ask a parenting question, if you don't mind. Uh, we're a young church, and that means a lot of uh, young, busy 
parents, uh, sometimes nervous parents, uh, about how their kids are going to turn out. So if you guys could go back to the late 20-something or early 30-something version of yourself and speak some wisdom from what you've learned, uh, could, could you share just a, a nugget or two for us? Margaret, what do you think? You want to say something? And she still does. She still does. I mean, at 36, 33, and 30, our kids are distant from us, but we love them so much. We love it when they come home, and, and we just, um, we're so thankful for them. And I have to say publicly, too, what I didn't say yesterday, but about once or twice a day, I've been saying recently, Margaret, I am so happy to be married to you. <laughs> and I want to say it again. Oh, yeah, well, that's so yeah. great. We have the joy of living uh, very close to um, our grown daughters and sons-in-law and their two sons each, so our four total grandsons. Uh, One of them lives five minutes away, uh, and he is one of uh, the pastors uh, of our church, and so our daughter uh, goes to, to church with us and two of our grandsons, and then our other daughter lives two blocks from us she and her husband and so we Mm. see their kids all the time and it's an absolute joy Uh, and they go to another church nearby in the community and uh, they love God with all their hearts and uh, and it's a wonderful thing to see it and, and we're so grateful and we do not ever look at them and think boy did we do it all right to make them that way. It's just purely the grace of God. But we are grateful for certain things as we look back. And, and one of the, the things, I think, is just the, what should be obvious, I guess, that no substitute for the time that we invested in those kids' lives. Yep. And, and it meant so much to us, and, and it meant a lot to them. But also, I think the Deuteronomy 6 stuff of the talking as you go in the way, just as life goes by, I remember so many conversations with my daughters when we drive somewhere, we go to a store, we teachable moments all the time. And the thing is, you can't have those teachable moments, these quality times, without a pretty good mass of quantity time in which those quality times fall. Because you can't just say, okay, we're going to have these two hours here, cut it out of my schedule, I'm going to be with my daughters, and then we'll really get into you know, stuff that matters, and now I retreat again to my work and my life, and I'm not spending much time with them. Because what we found was that the, the great quality times came unexpectedly. At the moment, you pray, you ask God, 
open up doors of conversation. And sometimes I'd bring up things, and sometimes it would work, and sometimes it wouldn't. Mm -hmm. But just by being in their presence and living life with them, then they would bring up things, or something would happen, and there it was, that teachable moment, that, yeah. that opportunity. And I just look back and treasure those. And one other comment I would make as I look back, I uh, one time was with uh, my youngest daughter, Angela. This was probably five years ago when she was maybe 24 years old. And I was standing there as someone came up to her and said, what, what do you remember most about what anything your dad did when you were growing up? And so, you know, I, I don't know what she's going to say, but, you know, you hope for some sterling moment of, uh, of, of great fathering that will be forever remembered or something, you know. I wasn't really expecting that. But nonetheless, you would, you would hope for such a thing. And she said, well, I remember one time when my dad came to me and said, please forgive me, sweetheart. I shouldn't have said that to you. And I, it really struck me, and I knew exactly what she was talking about. We both knew what the situation was. But what was so powerful to me as I walked away is, you know what? What my daughter remembers as meaning a lot to her involved a failure on my part. And the one good thing I did was admit it, confess it, and ask her forgiveness wow. for it. Wow. Thanks. Great Thanks. stuff. Why don't we end there? Thank you guys so much for your time today and your energy and your wisdom. Let me pray for you and then we'll call it quits. God, I thank you for these brothers and I thank you for their gifts and I thank you for their time and their sacrifice, uh, their time away from their lives uh, in Phoenix and um, in Oregon. And um, we pray you would Bless their ministry, their work. Make it fruitful. Make it, Lord, full of your goodness and grace. Make it, um, make it of great encouragement and benefit and, and truth for our church and for the church in, um, in the world. Lord, we thank you for a couple days to sit and soak together, uh, to soak in your word, to to think on things that we probably wouldn't have uh, forced ourselves to think about uh, apart from this conference. And so uh, give us wisdom. Give us wisdom in our political thoughts, our votes, uh, whatever we pursue. Lord, give us a heartbeat for the nations, an increased growing heartbeat for the nations and for your kingdom and gospel spreading in those nations. Lord, may your glory um, one day fill this earth like the waters cover the sea. We long for that, Father. We long to see it. We want to see more of it in our lifetime. And so we pray for your spirit to come down and we pray for revival. We pray, Lord, to, um, to see much more of your kingdom um, in the years to come than what we know right now. Uh, do it for your glory, Father. Do it because Jesus died and was raised. And because this is your plan, it will happen. We're just jealous to see it um, ourselves and to see it soon. So for your glory, do it. Again, we thank you. Give us rest tonight. And um, 
We look forward to being together as a body tomorrow in corporate worship to celebrate the resurrection of our Savior. That's our only hope, so give us good rest in his finished work tonight. Amen. Amen. Well, if you're DSE folk, uh, we'll see you tomorrow at 9 or 1045. Wayne will be preaching for us uh, from Proverbs chapter 4, guarding your heart. Look forward to that. Uh, If you don't have a church home, we would love to see you. Please come. Otherwise, um, enjoy your church home. Thanks for being with us this weekend. You're dismissed. Have a great night.